Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered... God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word, Lord. There are so many things that keep us from seeing it clearly. Sometimes we are confused. Sometimes we are distracted. Sometimes our hearts don't want to hear it. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would overcome all of those things for us right now. That we would see you in your, in your word. That we would love you. And that we would follow you with our whole hearts. We depend on you. And we ask that you would do this right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Here at at First Baptist of Holly, we believe, as the scriptures clearly teach, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so quite literally, we read the scriptures and we dedicate time for their preaching because we believe that Ultimately, we will never know God unless we first hear him, and you hear him in his word. Not only do we believe that we are saved by faith, and what I mean by saved is that your sins are forgiven, and you are welcomed into a relationship with God. Not only are we saved by faith, but as believers in Jesus Christ, we grow by faith, by hearing what God says clearly in his word, and by being brought into a place of excited, enthusiastic, and joyful obedience 
that depends on listening to the word of God. And we believe that this happens especially because all of the Bible points to Jesus Christ. It's not a magic book, but God uses it to point us to his son, Jesus. And so we see Jesus, Genesis to Revelation, and we especially see Jesus in the Gospels. And so we are going through the book of Luke, asking our Heavenly Father to help us know Jesus better so that we grow as believers and so that if you're not a believer this morning, you will see him clearly and you will want to love him and follow him and obey him with your whole life in a joyful way. And so this morning, I invite you to look with me at the book of Luke, and I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. Luke is roughly three quarters of the way through the Bible, so if you thumb your way towards the first half, you find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. If you, if you reach John and Acts, you've gone a little bit too far, you need to go back. We're going to be in chapter 6, and I want to encourage you to follow along with me in Luke chapter 6. Now, by way of reminder... I want to give you a little bit of an update of of what we've seen already of Jesus in this book. And it's my prayer that today we will listen to the Lord with humble honesty and we will find the rest that Jesus offers. There are two themes that I want to tell you about before we read the text. And I entitled this message, Resting in the Lord of the Sabbath. And, and if you are tired this morning, and there's a kind of physical tiredness, and then there's a kind of spiritual tiredness, the good news of this message is that you can find rest. And just like physical rest makes you feel stronger and healthier and more hopeful, spiritual rest will be a blessing to you that is even greater than 10 hours of sleep from a Friday night to a Saturday morning. It cannot compare to peace with God and the joy of knowing that God loves you and offers rest to you in the person of Jesus Christ. This morning, as that rest is held out, we're going to see two themes. First, we're going to see that some people are dishonest in how they perceive Christ. In fact, it's possible that you are self-deluded, that you have deceived yourself, so that when you look at Christ, you think a certain way about him, but it's different than how he actually is. And there are a lot of reasons that that happens in each of us. Sometimes our pride blinds us to who Jesus is and what he's calling us to do. Sometimes We can't see him clearly because we don't like what he is saying and doing. And that might seem unthinkable. And yet it happens over and over again, not just with non-believers, but with people within the church as well. And so my prayer this morning is that we would be honest in how we look at Jesus and that we would welcome what he has to say for each of us in a very personal way. The second theme that you see is that Jesus does offer absolutely everyone rest with no exceptions. And he is willing to extend that to you this morning and he's willing to extend that to me. And so my prayer is that we would be able to listen honestly and humbly and that we would enjoy that spiritual rest. 
Now, at this point in Luke, Jesus is still early in his ministry. He's been preaching maybe a matter of weeks, maybe a a month or two, but this is not very far into his earthly ministry. And he is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is that time on earth when God rules and reigns in righteousness. So there's no one who ever goes hungry. There's no one who is ever a victim of abuse. That all of the sins and problems that plague us, all of the substance addictions that drive us away, all of those will be under God's righteous rule. And it'll be a time of blessing. And it'll be a time of joy. And what Jesus is preaching is that the kingdom of God, when he was here on earth, was at hand. It was close. It was about to begin. And so Jesus is telling everyone they need to be ready. The kingdom of God is full of goodness, and I am not, and you aren't either. And so what Jesus announces is, repent, be ready. If you want to enjoy the goodness of God reigning on earth, repent of your sins, find forgiveness that the Father offers, and be ready for the kingdom that's so close. And ask for God's forgiveness for your sins, he will forgive you, and then the kingdom of God will be here before you know it. And as he proclaims all of God's promises about that time of blessing, all the way from Genesis through Malachi, all of the Old Testament. As he calls people to repent, what he does is not only is he preaching and saying things that are true from the Old Testament, he begins to work miracles that prove his message. So the kingdom of God is a time of health and blessing, and Jesus takes people who are unwell and brings them to a place of health and blessing and demonstrates he's the one that's going to make this happen. He is the king. So if you were here last week or you listened to last week's message, we saw Jesus cleansed a leper. He forgave the sins of a man who could not walk. And then when people said, who can forgive sins but God alone? He said, I'm going to make this man walk so that you know that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. And he healed the man, and everyone who saw it praised God and was excited and enthusiastic that something so awesome was happening right in front of them. And they began to understand that Jesus really could forgive sins. And then Jesus welcomed a tax collector into his inner circle of the disciples. And people criticized him and said, how are you claiming to speak for God, and yet you spend time with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. And he demonstrates that that is an open invitation to anyone. Lepers were considered unclean. If you were a good religious Jew, you would not associate with them. Jesus healed them and told them, go straight to the priest. Go right into the temple because you are clean and cleansed. Jesus can do that. And and as he does that and touches people that the Pharisees, you know, they are unclean. And, And as he welcomes and accepts real sinners who have real problems, the Pharisees begin to question what he's doing because he's willing to associate with people that they don't like. And Jesus warns them, That if you love your old system of rules, you will not like what Jesus does in the kingdom of God. And this is terrifying because what that means is that when the kingdom comes, if you don't like what Jesus is doing, you will find yourself literally an enemy of God. And you will not be welcomed into the blessing of the kingdom, but you will be pushed outside of it where there is no blessing at all. 
And that conflict that Jesus has with the religious leaders that started last week, today becomes a full-on war. And you see that they no longer are coming to Christ to hear him and to see if he genuinely is faithful to what God has said in the Old Testament. Instead, they're coming to Christ looking for a way to dismiss him. So number one, we're going to see that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And to do that, read with me verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6. Luke writes, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, What are you doing, or why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, as we look at this, and I'll be honest here, I believe these five verses are five of the most difficult verses to interpret and understand in all of the Bible. This is not an easy text to look at. So there are a couple things that we need to know. On the surface, it almost looks like Jesus is willing to dismiss the law. But I want to remind you of some of what Jesus had said. Jesus clearly says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in Matthew, he says, anyone who teaches someone to negate the least commandment of the law will be counted least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is not dismissing the clear law of the Old Testament. He is telling the Pharisees, I am the one who will interpret this and tell you what it means. And you don't have a leg to stand on in criticizing what my disciples have done here. I want to be real clear. The Old Testament demonstrates that what the disciples did was not wrong. They're walking through a field of grain. They grab a few handfuls and they rub their fingers together and they eat just a few kernels of wheat. The Old Testament law, to to us, we actually wouldn't say that's a violation of the Sabbath. We'd say that's theft. What are you doing stealing someone else's grain? But the Old Testament law clearly allows that if you walk through someone else's field, so long as you're not cutting the grain and harvesting it, that would be theft. If you just walk through and meet your own physical needs and your own physical hunger, that was clearly permitted in the law. It says so in Deuteronomy. You are welcome to do that anywhere in Israel. And think for just a second. Think what that means. That means that no one in Israel has to go hungry. That even in ancient Israel, before the kingdom is experiencing the fullness of God's blessing, God is making provision for people so that their basic needs are met. So if you are the poorest of the poor, you can still find food and you can still satisfy your own hunger. And so what the disciples did here is clearly allowed in the Old Testament, but the the Pharisees say they're breaking the Sabbath, that they're working on the day that God told them to set aside and rest. And God does say that you are not to do any work on the Sabbath. But what they have done in Jesus' day is they have defined work so specifically and minutely that even something small that really isn't labor they say is a violation of God's law. And what's so interesting in this passage 
is Jesus does not have a dispute with them about the law. He doesn't say, all right, turn in your Bibles to Leviticus. We're going to talk about this. He doesn't go there. He doesn't demonstrate to them from the Old Testament scriptures exactly that his disciples are in the right and their understanding is wrong. What he does is he goes completely over their heads and says, I am Lord of the Sabbath and I will tell you what it means. You do not have a leg to stand on in trying to convict my disciples of breaking the Sabbath. You don't even know what the Sabbath is for. He says, Jesus says, that he has the authority to explain what Sabbath is really about. And now to understand that, we've got to talk about David for a minute. So you, you may remember, David is a king in ancient Israel. He is, he is the most beloved king in all of Israel. He is seen in some ways as the height of God's blessing because of his ability to reign in righteousness and in goodness. And David was anointed king by the prophet Samuel, but this is where it gets strange and, and interesting. He is intended to replace the king on the throne, Saul, but Saul is still reigning when he is anointed. So you may remember, God tells Samuel first to anoint Saul. Saul physically looks like a great king. He's large, stands head and shoulders above the rest. He looks strong in appearance, but he is a coward at heart, and he listens to people rather than to God. And because of his fear of man, he turns from God and begins disobeying what God clearly told him to do. And so God, in judgment on Saul and Saul's family, has Samuel anoint David, who will rule the entire kingdom in the place of Saul, and you would think that this would immediately spark a civil war. But it doesn't. David will not fight King Saul because David looks at Saul and says, God anointed him as king. I'm not going to raise my hand against God's anointed. And so David takes in faith the promise that God will put him on the throne in his own time. Now, this is just an aside. David in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of Christ. So when we talk about the kingdom of God is at hand, but it's obviously not here right now, there is a precedent in David's life that yes, Jesus is king. Yes, Jesus is ruling, reigning on his throne in heaven. But he's not here on earth. But there will be a time when God puts him on the throne here. And even in David, if you read the story carefully, you can see foreshadows of what happens with Christ. Now, take that, you know, kind of put it aside. We're going to go back to the main point of the message. While David is running for his life from King Saul. King Saul obviously wants to kill him, right? He hates the man that has been anointed to replace him. While he's running from King Saul, there comes a time when he has to escape a town where Saul and Saul's army are. And as he leaves, David asks a priest for provisions for himself and for the few men who are loyal to him before they run for their lives. David's circumstances are life and death, and if he and his men do not have food, they will not escape. And the priest does not know the full situation. In fact, David is not fully honest with the priest as this happens. But the priest trusts David, and he gives him bread that was intended for the priests to eat in a holy place. It was only for the priests. 
And Jesus in our text today clearly acknowledges that giving that bread to David and David eating it with his men was a violation of ceremonial law. He, he clearly says in verse 4 here, it was not lawful for any but the priest to eat it. But King David chooses as God's anointed to meet his own hunger and to satisfy the hunger of the men with him. Jesus holds this up as an example of David the king deciding how to interpret the law. He's holding it up as a difficult moral decision. You know, we like to ask questions like this. You know, if a Nazi's knocking at your door and you're hiding a Jewish person in your home, do you lie? Is it okay to lie in that circumstance? This is a circumstance like that. David and his men are in a situation of life and death. Does the priest say, you cannot have the only bread that's here, you must go hungry? More importantly, because Jesus is talking about David, he doesn't even really mention the priest in this context. More importantly, does David as the king have the right to say, give me that bread, I and my men need it now, and our current needs are more important than the ceremonial law? Does David have that right? Now, Jesus does not clearly answer that question. What he does is he holds up the original intention and purpose of the law, and he does this clearly in Matthew and Mark's gospel. So if you're curious about that, I'd encourage you to read both of those accounts, because this is in all three of the, the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What Jesus does is he says, God requires mercy, not sacrifice. And he says, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he says, the entire law is summed up in the command, love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, God's law is given to bless people, not to curse them. And so David, as the king, exercised mercy for the men that he was with, and as the king met his own physical needs, in this instance, by taking bread that he should not have had. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, would you have argued with David on that day? If you are the priest, do you send David and his men away hungry to starve? They will die if that's your answer. And what Jesus implies and then says is if you would not have argued with David then, do not argue with me now. Jesus is saying, David was a king in Israel. I am the king. And I will tell you what Sabbath means. And he is not saying, forget the law. He's saying, I'm the king and I'll tell you how it applies and when it applies. Jesus clearly has more authority than David to interpret the law. And then he demonstrates exactly what the Sabbath is for and why the Pharisees were so wrong to misunderstand what his disciples were doing by healing on the Sabbath. So you find this sort of confusing five verses, and then you find exactly what the Lord of the Sabbath believes Sabbath is for, in the next passage. So read with me verses 6 through 11, and let's look at what our Lord does and what our Lord is like. It says, On another Sabbath, 
he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. He's still devoted to teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. They're not concerned at all about learning what Sabbath is for. They don't believe that he's Lord of the Sabbath. At this point, they just want to condemn him. But he, verse 8, knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said, at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. As a side note, before I talk about what Jesus does with Sabbath and what that means for us, Notice that at this point, the scribes and the Pharisees who prided themselves on following God's word, on following God's law, they are filled with rage and fury at Jesus who has just exercised mercy. You see someone extending mercy to someone else and that makes you angry? Something is deeply wrong in your heart. They are no longer watching Jesus, God's son, so that they can hear what God says and what God promises. They are only looking at him so that they can accuse him. And I want to say this is not the main point of my message. We need to be so careful in our hearts how we look at Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, they moved. This is early in Jesus' ministry. They moved in just a few short months, maybe just a matter of weeks, from listening to Jesus as a teacher to arguing with him and now to being full of fury when they see him doing the works of God. And I want to say, it happens in churches today. Sometimes when people see Jesus doing something, you know, they look at new people and be like, I don't know that guy. Sometimes when people want to do things a little bit differently and they're faithfully trying to follow Jesus, people in the church get angry and they don't think, look at what God can do through this ministry. They just look and say, well, that's not how we've done it in the past. Why would we change? And our hearts can be full of anger and our hearts can dismiss the work of Jesus. And I don't want that to happen at our church. So let me say to each of you and to myself as well, when you become angry, check your heart. Anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. There is such a thing as righteous anger. There is a way to be zealous for God and His holiness. And I'm not denying that. But if you are angry, check your heart. Are you being faithful to the Lord Jesus and His love for people? Are you being faithful to Jesus' mission? Jesus' miracles are illustrating and showing the blessings of the kingdom of God. Jesus wants to bless his people. But if you and I are are full of anger, 
for ridiculous reasons, we're going to miss what Jesus does in our own day. So I just want to offer that as a caution. That's, a, that's in some sense, a side note, because what I really want to stress is how generous and kind and full of mercy our Savior is. But the obvious application from the perspective of the the scribes and the Pharisees is don't miss what Jesus is doing. And I believe that's true for us. If you're angry and frustrated, check your heart. James says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, and it never will will. Now Jesus shows exactly what kind of Lord he is. He's called himself Lord of the Sabbath. So we ought to wonder what does that mean when he claims a position of authority and even absolute authority? What kind of a Lord will he be? What kind of Lord is he? And he shows exactly what kind of Lord he is when he heals this man with a withered hand. He says, it is lawful to do good and to save life. That is the Lord Jesus' business. He is devoted to his heavenly Father who gave the law so that it would bless his people. Jesus is devoted to teaching the word of God, which includes the law. And that leads Jesus to acts of mercy and healing. One commentator I really like, he put it this way. He said, Jesus is saying, in effect, to the Pharisees and scribes, it may be your kind of Sabbath to leave people hungry and disabled, but Jesus says, my kind of Sabbath is different. The question is, for you and I, how do you and I Treat Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. If that's true that he is Lord of the Sabbath, and if that's true that he extends mercy to anyone, how do you and I rest in that mercy? Well, number one, we trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. You and I, we are a lot like that paralytic that was brought to Jesus for healing. You know, we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is my number one most pressing need. I need to walk. And Jesus says, you need your sins forgiven. And so we rest in the forgiveness of our sins. Not all of us are going to experience the joy and the blessing of physical healing, but Jesus extends a greater kind of mercy to you and I. So we rest in the mercy of the Lord Jesus when we confess our sins and experience forgiveness. I believe communion is a powerful source of spiritual rest, not because there's anything magical about it, but because it reminds us so profoundly of what Jesus did for each of us for the forgiveness of our sins. If you struggle with guilt, if you struggle believing that God would really forgive you, you can find rest in what Jesus did for you on the cross, in his death and in his resurrection. You can rest in forgiveness. Secondly, we find rest in our Lord Jesus when we treat him as Lord and recognize that his commands are for our blessing. If you look at the rest of chapter 6 here, we're going to see some of the teaching of Jesus about what's right and what's wrong. All of it is built on the Old Testament law. And sometimes what Jesus says is hard to hear. Jesus is going to say some things to you and to me that we don't really like. 
And what we need to believe is that Jesus' commands are for our blessing. We don't obey Jesus because we're afraid that he's going to crush us. We obey Jesus because our Lord is kind and full of mercy, and we find blessing in his commands. Maybe not right away, but ultimately our Lord will bless us because of obedience. So we trust in the blessings that are promised through obedience, and we obey him. He is a kind and a merciful Lord. Thirdly, we listen to what the Lord Jesus teaches about the law. Jesus is not giving you and I the right to ignore the law. In fact, the Bible says to Christians who follow Jesus, this is the love of God, if you really love God, that you keep his commandments. And Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But here's the thing. As I hold up the commandments of Jesus and affirm the goodness of the law, we cannot miss that Jesus is correcting the idea that religious rules are more important than mercy. Rules are sometimes good and they are sometimes helpful. But they can also be a source of great hypocrisy. And that's what we see it became in the lives of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus teaches us a lot about right and wrong. He does. He doesn't say forget the law. But he came to change you and me from the inside out. He does not care if you can make yourself look good by following a special set of rules, but inside you're dead. He came to raise you up to life so that you would love following the good laws that God has given. Many of you will remember some of the dumb rules that previous generations of Christians had in American culture. Movies about music and cards. Even in the 90s and early 2000s, I was part of a church that would argue about Christian rock and roll. And is syncopated rhythm really of the devil? And maybe it is. And, And it's ridiculous. Jesus doesn't care about your external rules that are intended to puff up your own appearance of righteousness. Those rules sometimes made it possible for great hypocrisy. You, know, you could be a, an abusive husband who beat your wife and be a member in good standing at the church because you showed up in a suit and tie and you didn't drink. Those rules had a way of making church people look down at other people who did drink or who did go to movies or whatever it was. And outsiders, non-Christians, have rejected Christ because they've seen the hypocrisy of people who called themselves followers of Jesus, but really they only followed their own special set of rules, and inside their hearts were dead, and they were full of pride. Jesus utterly condemns that kind of wickedness. But here's where we can go wrong in the other direction. Sometimes, as we condemn people with rules and as we condemn that kind of hypocrisy, sometimes we decide that mercy means contradicting what God clearly teaches. Everyone in secular culture today, Republican and Democrat alike, believes that if two men really love each other, they ought to be able to marry. Everyone thinks that if a woman feels like she's really a man, you ought to call her a he. So some would say that if we follow the teachings of Jesus, 
Mercy means going along with whatever seems loving. But that's not what Jesus intends here. Jesus is saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Not you, not me, not American culture. Jesus is the one who decides what's right and what's wrong. And Jesus wants us to look to him to know what's right and what's wrong. We don't listen to the culture. We listen to King Jesus, if you are a follower of the Lord. But don't misunderstand me, because everything I just said make you feel like, man, you, you hate gay people, and you, you, you don't want to see transgender people experience the love of Christ. That's not true either. Do not misunderstand me. I am convinced that if Jesus lived and walked in 21st century America, Jesus would have had gay friends. I am convinced that he would have loved heroin addicts. I am convinced that he loves everyone, and you and I need to have the same love. He is full of compassion, and you and I need to have the same compassion. But Jesus still would have called his friends to repentance. He didn't come to abolish the law and say that your sin is fine, He came to fulfill the law and extend mercy to sinners who were under condemnation. He did not come to affirm sin. He came to love sinners and call them to repentance. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Now, as much as you and I might love our own particular sins, your sin is is killing you. It is exhausting you. And when Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary, he is inviting you to lay your sins down, not continue to walk in them. So the question is, how do you come to Jesus? How do you rest in him? Well, first, and there are two parts to this, you believe him and you obey him. You don't come to him and say, you know, I like that, but I think he was off here. You believe everything that he says. And you want to know what he says? You read his word. You read his word. And not only do you believe what he says and obey him, that's just the first part. It's possible to believe and obey and to be grumpy and and to be irritated at what he has called you to do. More than that, if you come to Jesus and rest in Jesus, you will love him and you will worship him. And that will not be a burden, that will be a delight, that will be a joy. So you remember, before I started preaching, Lauren read a passage from Hebrews about rest and God's invitation to rest. And it had this funny phrase, it said that we should strive to enter that rest. Sometimes it's a lot of work to enter that rest, and that sounds like a total contradiction But here's how I believe that's resolved. Hebrews says, at the beginning of that passage, we who have believed, that is believed in Jesus, our Savior, have entered God's rest. There are two parts of that. You you believe that Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who died for your sins. That makes it possible for you to enter rest. And so I believe when it says believe, you are agreeing with God But what he says about your sin and his sacrifice, for me, when I came to Christ, I remember specifically, God convicted me that I was a liar. 
And a little later on in my walk with Christ, God convicted me that I was enormously proud, that I loved to condemn people who were not as smart as I was or who were not as good at having a devotional life as I was. And so for me, coming to Jesus meant agreeing with God about my sin. And then it also meant agreeing with God that Jesus' sacrifice covers all of my sin. And so I believe what Jesus says, and I believe in what he did, that it allows me to be forgiven because his blood covers my sin. But it doesn't end with belief. Hebrews says, we who have believed have entered God's rest. And rest, if you look at all of the Old Testament, it's an invitation to enjoy God's presence. That is where we love and worship him, and not as a burden. If you understand that Sabbath is a time to be with God, this makes enormous sense. So Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who invites you into a relationship with God. And Jesus demonstrates what that means by healing people. And if you clearly see how merciful King Jesus is and how compassionate he is, and you understand that he extends that mercy and that compassion to anyone then your heart begins to rise and you begin to love Jesus more and more. And so I want to take you, just for a second, just, just imagine, just as we close, imagine for a second, you are the person with the withered hand, the shriveled hand. Your fingers are stunted. They haven't grown as they should. And you've never been able to pick something up. Now imagine for just a second, you're sitting in that synagogue and Jesus, knowing the environment, knowing there are people there that are just wanting to trap him, Jesus looks at you with your withered hand and he says, stand up. And so you, you do, not fully knowing what's about to happen. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And for the first time, your fingers obey you. And you find instead of weakness, you find health and you find strength. Can you imagine the joy of stretching out your hand for the first time in your life? Can you imagine the joy of being able to hold a glass of water for the first time, and being able to, to, to raise it up to your lips and to take a sweet drink. That man was forever changed because of the mercy of Jesus. And Jesus said, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is a time of blessing. It is a time of fullness. When you come into the presence of God, you find healing and you find forgiveness. And if that's what Jesus is like, who here doesn't want to praise him? Who here doesn't want to worship him? Now understand this, that if you can appreciate that kind of healing, Jesus extends an even greater mercy to you, literally, to each of you here. Jesus extends the mercy that says, even though you are a sinner, and even though you are under God's condemnation because you have broken the law, Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, offers you forgiveness for your sins. And he offers you the ability to rest in him. And when you understand that mercy and that forgiveness, then singing is the most natural thing in the world. And when you open the word of God, you're not looking at it saying, man, I don't know about what that says. You're looking at it saying, even the hard parts, you want to understand them. You want to know what they mean because you know that Lord Jesus, who forgave all your sins, wants to bless you through his word so you're eager to hear it preached and you're eager to read it and to understand it and to know it because it's in the word of God that you find life and health and blessing. So attending church on Sunday 
It's not a burden. It's not like, oh, I have to be there. It's a chance to lay your burdens down and to remember the grace of God and to celebrate what he's doing. So if I had to say in just a single statement, what does it mean to rest in Jesus? It means that you worship him as your savior. Some of that worship means you set aside time to worship with the church. You want to be here as often as possible because it's in the fellowship of believers that you together encourage each other, that you point your hearts back to King Jesus and remember his mercy and celebrate it. When we are full of joy because of Jesus and we have encouraged each other, then when we look around at other people, people who are really still in sin and, and are separated from God and cut off from we don't look at them and think, man, I'm glad I'm not as bad as that guy. We look at them and think, you need mercy just like I need mercy. And I want to get you that mercy. I want to bring you to King Jesus because he will forgive you and love you. And it doesn't matter what you do right now. It doesn't matter what your sins are. It doesn't matter who you love or what you think about who you are. God loves you and will offer you mercy and will offer you healing. And so we want to go and extend that mercy to other people. And so as I close, I guess there are two parts of this. I want to ask, how tired are you this morning? As you think about our our church, how tired are you with other people? Do you look at other people and think, man, God loves that guy. God loves that guy and, and, and God bless him and continue to extend mercy. When, when you think about your relationship with God, are you still celebrating the mercy that he offers you? Or do you feel like maybe it ran out and he's still kind of irritated with you? Because if that's you this morning, whether you're grumpy with other people or you feel like God is so angry with you, my invitation is you, rest in Jesus. We have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness and he ever lives to intercede. So let us hold fast to our confession in King Jesus and receive his mercy together and love one another because of what he's done for each of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you have not changed. And I thank you for Jesus who shows us your steadfast love and and that you are abounding in mercy. Lord, give us hearts that love him. I pray that as you call us to obedience, we would find joy in it. And I praise you for your goodness. And I ask for your blessing on each of us. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.